in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk report defines the seven stars in the winter circle displayed in the evening sky. Pat and Jim Sanders share their archived Audubon report on viewing winter birds. Stephanie Phillips continues her conversation with Nico Juarez about beavers for her segment Now You Know. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. First, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. The U.S. Embassy in Kiev says the first shipment of a $200 million security support package for Ukraine has arrived. As NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow, it's part of a U.S. effort to shore up Ukrainian defenses as tens of thousands of Russian troops are positioned along its border. The aid shipment follows Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to Kiev earlier this week, in which he pledged American support for Ukrainian sovereignty and additional aid in the event of a Russian incursion. Similar military shipments have poured in from the UK and soon the Baltic nations, which announced they have White House approval to provide US-made anti-aircraft Stinger missiles. Russia has criticized the moves as destabilizing an already tense situation. During talks with Blinken in Geneva Friday, Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov repeated Kremlin claims it has no plans to attack its neighbor and blamed Western governments for hyping the conflict. Lavrov also called NATO's expanding military role in Ukraine the real threat to regional security. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. New vaccine requirements at U.S. ports of entry are taking effect today. As NPR's Joel Rose reports, the rules now apply to essential as well as non-essential travel. The Department of Homeland Security will require COVID-19 vaccinations for all non-U.S. individuals entering the country at land, ports of entry, and ferry terminals. That mandate will now apply to so-called essential travelers, including truck drivers and nurses who are crossing the Mexican and Canadian borders by land or ferry. DHS has already required proof of vaccination for all non-essential foreign visitors since reopening the borders for tourism in November. But immigration authorities had delayed enforcement for essential workers until now to allow time for them to get vaccinated. The new vaccine requirements do not apply to U.S. citizens or lawful permanent residents. Joel Rose, NPR News. A wildfire in California's Big Sur area has forced residents to evacuate. The blaze broke out last night after Vice President Kamala Harris was in San Bernardino announcing $1.3 billion for disaster relief for the U.S. Forest Service. Jonathan Linden of member station KVCR reports nearly half of it will go to California. Over the last two years, more than 6.5 million acres have burned in California. The federal money will help pay to replant forests and clean up hazardous materials. Harris says the U.S. must do more on climate change, which has increased the likelihood of bigger, more damaging wildfires. The climate crisis has almost everything to do with what we are seeing in terms of the crisis of wildfires. 
Harris also touted $600 million that's earmarked to raise salaries for federal firefighters. For NPR News, I'm Jonathan Linden. This is NPR. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farming Country. Coming up on today's show, Pat and Jim Sanders report for the birds from the Northeast Pennsylvania Audubon Society. Stephanie Phillips continues her conversation with Nico Juarez about beavers. On this segment, now you know, we'll hear about beaver biology. But first, here is Keith Hubbard with Star Talk. We're listening to a bit of music today from the CD Earth and Worm. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. country. I'm Keith Hubbard and this is Star Talk. The Winter Circle is composed of seven bright stars spanning six constellations. The Winter Circle is centered around the most conspicuous constellation in the winter sky, Orion. Orion dominates the southern sky throughout the night during the winter. To find the Winter Circle, locate the brilliant blue star Rigel on the lower right side of Orion. Travel clockwise to find the southernmost and brightest star of the winter circle, Sirius, in the constellation Canis Major. If Sirius is at the 6 o'clock position, then the next star, Procyon, is at the 8 o'clock position. Procyon is the brightest star in the constellation Canis Minor. At the 10 o'clock position lie the duo Castor and Pollux, the brightest stars in Gemini. Heading up to the 12 o'clock position is the northernmost star in the winter circle, Capella. Capella is in the constellation Auriga the Charioteer. Auriga resembles the shape of a house that we all drew in grade school, with Capella being the bottom right star of the base of a house whose roof is inside the winter circle. Continuing around the circle, we arrive at Aldebaran, the star that marks the angry red eye of the bull in Taurus. Going from Taurus to Rigel completes the Winter Circle. The Winter Circle is high enough in the southern sky to be seen around 9 p.m. and can be found in the evening sky through the end of March. See if you can spot the Winter Circle. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Here is an archived segment with Pat and Jim Sanders reporting for the birds from the Northeast Audubon Society. Good morning. This is Jim and Pat Sanders for Farm and Country, and our program is For the Birds. 
I've just been observing a host of birds at our feeders and reflecting on the best bird observation experiences we've had this winter. I'm focusing on winter because this is the season when we are easily able to see the birds that have remained here, and because it's when I'm most grateful for the signs of life and liveliness that the birds offer us. So, what has been my most memorable bird observation this winter? That's an easy one. As I recall a hike, we took up to Irving Cliff in Honesdale to enjoy the view of the town. We arrived at the top and were looking down at the town spread below us when a mature bald eagle sailed into sight directly below us. It was only about 50 yards away from us and totally unconcerned with our presence and nearness. We looked down at it as it soared north over the Dyberry Creek, apparently intending to try to catch some fish. The white of its head and tail and the dark brown of its back and top of its wings showed vividly in the clear winter light. It was a magnificent sight and so rare as we seldom get a chance to be above one in flight. I'll never forget that one. Pat, what's been your best sighting this winter? This one is so vivid in my mind. We were doing the Christmas bird count in December driving to different sites for observation of possible birds. We drove into Prompton State Park near Honesdale and caught a sight of something moving near the field next to the dam. As we watched, a beautiful northern harrier sailed into view about a 100 yards away and flew about 20 feet high over the field. As she went, she quickly dropped to the ground several times, apparently in search of rodents, stayed on the ground a few seconds, then went airborne again. It was an immature harrier since the underside of its body and wings was strongly orangish, as opposed to the adult colorations. It flew back and forth across the field, giving us several minutes of observation and an opportunity to appreciate its flight patterns as well as its beautiful colors. Northern harriers are a type of hawk and have a white rump patch on top of their bodies that makes them easy to identify. They're fairly large, with a wingspan that reaches three and a half feet. They like to fly low over fields, dropping quickly onto prey, which is usually small mammals, and in the summer, snakes and frogs as well. We've had many other beautiful sightings this winter, in addition to these two. The striking red of a cardinal in a snowy tree, the bright red head of the red-bellied woodpeckers at our feeders, the turkey flock scratching through the snow in our front yard the sight of a tiny pine siskin hanging completely upside down from a feeder perch, pulling seeds from the feeder slot, while at the same time fighting off the goldfinches that were trying to get him to give up his position. These have all added to our enjoyment of winter in northeastern Pennsylvania. This has been Pat and Jim Sanders for Farm and Country, and we're For the Birds. This is Rosie Starr. I'd like to share some seasonal thoughts with you and ask you this question. What is the color of the dead of winter? An overnight snow fell and left us with four inches of fresh powdered fluff. Snow is draped on the trees, falling in clusters and clumps from the bare branches. What color are the branches in winter? There are no leaves of summer green or autumn blaze. 
driving on the highways past farming and country landscape, what is the color of haystacks sticking up from the snow? What is the color of the sky at sunset before the moonrise? What is the color of sunlight as it spills glitter on the snow in late afternoon? Or the icicles that hang along the roof's edge? How about those evergreen berry trees that feed and house the winter birds? Earlier this week, driving along the farm countryside, I noticed horses standing in the snow. Their color so dark and rich. Winter offers us an opportunity to see life with a seasonal perspective. Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. Today I'm in Youngsville speaking with Nico Juarez, founder of Beavers Work, a company that advocates for beavers in our area. Nico will tell us a bit about beaver lifestyle so we can understand and appreciate these furry critters. Nico, I have a little pond on my property and the beavers just came, and I wonder what it is in particular that attracts them to certain areas. I wanted them to come, and I sort of wished for them, and sure enough, they appeared. That's wonderful. I'm really happy to hear that. Can I ask how big your pond is? It's little, and it's not very deep, but the beavers are working on it. Right, and so I would imagine that you have perhaps a stream running through your property. Okay, so you have a stream running through your property, when in fact, actually, what beavers really need is a couple of things. They need low-lying valleys, they need stream and stream heads, and even continual water source, and often it's a stream. And what they'll do is they will block up the stream to create a water body. And by having a water body, it's their protective mechanism for predators. I would imagine that you have had beavers historically in the past, maybe prior to you living there, depending on the conditions. And so in this way, the cycle, say, of a wetland is, it, it really does depend on these smaller ones. It can be as little as 15 years. And in some of these larger ones, it can be decades because of what they really need is a food source. And they need a food source close to the shoreline because they're not so great at really uh, it's not that they can't walk on land but they're just excellent swimmers so they of course prefer to have as much water as possible and a close proximity to their food source right when we first came there weren't any beavers then the beavers showed up and ate a lot of the little trees around the little pond and it is a little pond and <laughs> the streams that comes into it aren't really year-round so i thought these beavers aren't going to like it much here and then after a while, all the trees close to the little pond were gone, except for birch. They don't seem to like that. Right. And then they went away. Several years went by, and now they're back. That's interesting. It's, it sounds to me like it's a dispersed beaver. So the cycle of the beaver is they're born into the colony, which is two mating pair, and they often have one to two kits. And those kits stay with the family unit for two years. And then after two years, they go on to seek a mate and start their own family. It's what we call dispersed beaver, where this dispersed beaver is really maybe finding a temporary hideout. 
the beaver typically goes at a range of about 10 miles. So maybe your spot is a perfect place for it to camp out. And it's really seeking something that, that this individual will be able to create a larger pond or wetland. I think that there's a lot of people asking the question, how do beaver understand this topography? How do they know water so well? How do they know hydrology better than we do? It's just really quite a wonder that they do. So I couldn't really answer exactly really how they know. But what I do know is that they managed to find low-lying valleys with a creek running through it. So if I had a creek in my backyard and it happened to be low-lying valley, which in fact I do, what they'll do and they'll continue to do on Cackletown Pond, what they will continue to do is they will continue to come back. So you'll trap them out and they'll continue to come back. So in the spring, what's going to happen at, for example, Cackletown Pond, they'll come along a new dispersed will and they'll say, hey, wow, look, this was already established and... There's a couple of homes here for me to rebuild, and there's already a very big beaver dam here that I can continue to patch up, and voila! So that's great for this particular situation. However, for just a regular stream that's never had a beaver on it, what they would do is they would come along and they would start chopping down small saplings, easily manageable saplings, and, and they start to dam off the stream and create a pond right behind it. I have the impression, just from watching my beavers, that they sort of do a trial dam, that they throw a few sticks down and see if anything happens behind it, and then if it doesn't work out so well, they try another place. That's my impression. That's, that's really interesting. And, and actually, I think that's a really good observation because that could be sort of key to witnessing how beaver understand water. I think that this is their way of problem solving, perhaps. Perhaps saying, they're thinking in their mind, this would be the perfect location, and they start there and see if it pawns up. Um, If it fails, say, in a few days or a few weeks, and they say, I need to go a little bit further downstream and or a little further upstream and test the waters, as it were. That's a really interesting observation. Yeah, I mean, the thing that makes it hard for them is if there's ledge and it's a wide area, then, of course, it's very hard to build a great big dam to stop the water from going over it. Nico, if a beaver comes to a creek near you, how do they go about establishing a home there? Often it's uh, the dispersed that leaves a colony because they mate for life. And so once the young leave their family colony, they often seek out a continual water source. Yeah, so that brings me to another fact. Here in New York, there's not so much what they call incised streams. Whereas on the West Coast, we are witnessing a lot of weather changing. When I was a kid in in the Washington area, it was uh, almost a rainforest environment. And now it seems dry and arid, much like a desert. The unprecedented temperatures of sustained 95, I've never witnessed that ever in that area. So to tie in the fact that when the trappers came along, they really continued. I I don't know for sure, but I think a, a lot of it may have to do with the gold rush. We changed the landscape so much by removing the beaver for 
brown gold that and during actual gold rush that the streams became so incised and by that i mean so deep so wide and so fast are these waters that it's nearly impossible for beavers to come along any work they do it just rushes right down the river and so actually my friends out in the west they're doing what they call beaver analog. We don't do beaver analogs here in New York and on the East Coast because we don't need to. But beaver analogs on the West Coast is interesting. It gives the beaver a fighting chance. So they'll come in and they'll pound these big posts into these big rushing rivers and they'll weave branches through almost kind of like what a beaver would do in these sections of 10 feet or 15 feet to slow that water down to give them a chance to build on top of. Kind of gives them a start. It a, does. Head, a head start. Yeah. Nico, do beavers have enemies? What enemies are there? By enemy, can you. Some predator that eats them. Well, I personally think the only enemy that a beaver has is the humans. I think it would be fair to say if I was a bear or a coyote or maybe even an eagle, I'm not going to not pick a, a meal from a beaver. I think it's fair to say that uh, they're probably a, a fine snack for a bear. But that's just part of the ecosystem. That's part of the importance of having predators like bear and wolves, other predators in the area, to keep them around, to actually keep beavers' population in check, and in fact even keep deer population in check in that way. But to sort of elaborate, I, I really think that we as humans aren't doing them any favors by having programs like trapping, uh, killing programs here in New York without holistically looking at each situation. So you'd have to be a pretty big predator to take on a beaver. Not necessarily. If you're a beaver kit and you're a pound, you could be swooped away by an owl, by a hawk. A bear could probably... A, a hawk could not take an adult-sized beaver, but a bear could take an adult-sized beaver. Do the kits go out? Do they poke their noses out of the lodge? Do they go swimming when they're very little? Kits actually don't learn how to swim until they're a little bit older. They hang out in their lodge. They're born in the early spring, and they hang out in the lodge with their family. They can't hold their breath for that long, and so they don't learn how to swim or really duck under. I'll explain a beaver lodge very quickly. A beaver lodge is sort of like a castle moat. Yeah, a castle moat, but they're waterproof, I guess. Yes, for the most part, they're waterproof, yes, with mud and rocks and, of course, with their sticks. And they always are building on top and always fortifying that. But the beaver lodge, their entrances, there's several. They have a couple of back doors, a couple of front doors, and those doors actually go in the water. It's sort of impenetrable, if you will. A fox couldn't swim out to a beaver lodge and dive in. Perhaps it could, but it generally doesn't. So circling back to the beaver kits, they don't learn how to hold their breath until they're several months old. So they're at the mercy of the parents to feed them and, and also to teach them how to hold their breath for the first time and swim out the, the front door or the back door to discover their little wetland they have. So their parents have to bring them their food for the first little while. They do. They eat mother's milk for a period of time, and then as they get a little older and their teeth start to fortify with the iron, their little young apprentices and the parents will teach them all kinds of things about 
what to eat and, and how to eat and how to pick apart the bark to get to the cambium. And of course, then that skill is the most important. And then they teach them skills of uh, how do you pond a stream, that kind of stuff. How do you fortify your house? How do you fortify a dam? I used to sit by the pond in the evening and watch the beavers, and they seemed to bring branches with leaves to the dam. You see these branches swimming across the pond. You, you don't really see much of the beaver except maybe the nose. I just assumed that they were feeding their kits rather than I, I didn't think they were using those for building. Right. They are feeding their kits after they're a couple of months old. And those branches, the ones with the leaves, and that's, and that's one of the things that you can see with beaver. You'll know there's beaver activity if there's pencil point whittled stumps, say, and, and you'll see a lot of branches that have some leaves attached to them, and then you'll know. Of course, you can see if, if there's beaver tracks as well. And if you can smell, like I can't, I have zero sense of smell, but the, you can smell a beaver mound, and, and that's their territorial way of making sure that other beavers, stranger beavers, don't come around. What time of year do they have their young, and how many do they have? So they have their young the early spring, when it's still frozen, and we'll hear in the New York region when it's still frozen. And typically, a mother will have up to four kits. She has four teats. If she has more, it's not entirely unusual, but generally speaking, she'll have one to two. The problem with trapping is that it triggers a response biologically to have much larger litter. Nico, how do the beaver families survive in the winter if the kits are born when it's still cold and maybe there's snow on the ground? Right. The beavers survive in their hut in the frozen. The question was asked about the the branches and, and the leaves still on them. They have several different lodges, and, the, and one of their lodges is really just for storing food. And that lodge is often very close to their den lodge. And so they'll go into one of their doorway areas, which is below the ice, and they will go to the refrigerator. <laughs> Yeah. Come thaw time, when there's no ice and there's no snow, that's when the kits really start to old enough to hold their breath and go under for the first time and explore their wetland. And how long do the kits take to mature and move away? The young kit is a young little animal that knows not too many things for the first good two years. I think it's safe to say that It takes a good solid two years to understand the engineering techniques of their parents. That what they teach their young isn't just simply survival, it's how to change a landscape. And there's a lot that goes with that. They take off at about year two in the fall. Nico, and some conservation organizations seem to move, relocate beavers where they're becoming a problem. How does that work out if you put a beaver down in a new spot? control beavers by relocating them, by trapping and moving. How does that work out for the beaver in a new, strange environment? Here in New York, live trapping and relocating beaver is illegal. Even with the permit, you cannot do it. The only trapping, when when people here in New York say trapping, trapping is lethal. In Massachusetts, there was an uproar in the mid-90s that happened because enough people gained awareness of the importance of beaver and understood how inhumane it was how they trapped. In Massachusetts, they can relocate beavers in Massachusetts. They can relocate beavers in a lot of different states, but in New York, they can't. 
So now you know some interesting facts about beavers. Our expert today has been Nico Juarez of Beavers Works in Youngsville. If you have ideas for future Now You Know segments, email me at stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. Hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard and Stephanie Phillips. Thanks to Pat and Jim Sanders from the Northeast Audubon Society for their archived report on winter birds. Special thanks goes to our guest, Nico Juarez, speaking on the topic of beaver biology. On today's Farming Country show, we share the music of Seth Stainback from the CD Earth and Worm. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Another crow hanging out on the wire. Another crow hanging out on the wire. Just another crow hanging out on the wire. Just another crow. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org On this week's On the Media, we explore best practices for journalists interviewing believers of the big lie. Pay attention to the language the right uses. Pay attention to what's baked into it. You can't let them use language to make it seem like 